rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Everybody, welcome to episode 188 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. In this episode, I'm going to continue my run through season three of the Falkine produced Superboy television show with the episodes Neela and the Beast and The Golem. This is episodes 13 and 14 of uh, season three. And this episode will see, uh, see the return of a familiar character from earlier in the season and the second episode kind of explores the cost of hatred a little bit. It doesn't really do much about the source of that hatred, but I guess one of the things it tries to convey is that it shows the effect of that hatred on a good person. I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that in the second segment with the Golem episode. Before I get to the business at hand, there is feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave's writing in on Man of Screen, episode 177. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. These were a couple of good episodes, with writing by some comic book writers, Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin for Brimstone, and Carrie Bates for Abandoned Earth, which, in my mind, often gives me the feeling that they, that they take the characters and stories a bit more seriously, while having fun when the story warrants. I liked Philip Michael Thomas's performance as Brimstone, giving him a sense of mystery and magic. Of course, Superboy can certainly use some magical-slash-supernatural help when battling a, mag- a magical and supernatural menace, and as you noted, this series does not shy away from those elements. I do wish, though, that the writers wouldn't go to that well too often, especially with sorcerer characters. My problem with such characters, even in the comics, like the Phantom Stranger or Dr. Fate, is that their powers and limits tend to be rather unclear and often becoming whatever the plot needs. Sometimes I find myself wondering, what can't this guy do? Which is often a complaint people have about Superman. For the supernatural, I think I prefer... Long-established creatures from folklore, like vampires or werewolves, because their powers and limits are usually better established and well-known. Like vampires, aversion to sunlight and crosses, or werewolves appearing at the full moon and being vulnerable to silver bullets. Of course, those might be changed in a particular story, like Dr. Shelley being active in the daylight, but then the writers must address that variation from established lore. With a character like Brimstone, the viewer isn't sure, without a big exposition dump, what he can and cannot do. It would have been interesting, though, to have the character return at some point. But based on your IMDb research, I guess that's not happening. Abandoned Earth was even better, I think, because reviewers already familiar with Superman, there was quite a sense of mystery about who these people are who claim to be Superboy's parents and what they're really up to. And even viewers who are only marginally familiar with, with Superman might well know that his real name is Kal-El and gave him Krypton. So there's that basic hook for just about everyone. Whoever Jor-El and Lara really are, they know an awful lot about Superboy's background, even more than he knows himself. I assume that they're unaware of how much he knows, since given his ignorance of his origin, they could have used any names and claimed to be from any planet. Their knowing his Kryptonian name and those of his parents leads me to wonder if they are, perhaps, escapees from the Phantom Zone, intent on getting Superboy to trust them so they can destroy him with his guard down. A plotifice that reminds me of some Silver Age Superboy comic stories. I'll have to wait until the next episode and to find out. You mentioned at one point that this episode, Abandoned Earth, gave us the first look inside the Kent home. Wasn't the interior of the Kent's place shown at least a bit in the season one episode, The Phantom of the Third Division? Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Dave gave me quite a bit to chew on in this letter, and I do agree that these were a couple of good episodes. Uh, I enjoyed Philip Michael Thomas's performance quite a bit in this episode. The one thing I noticed about Brimstone compared to some other sorcerer-type characters is that he seemed to do a lot of his work with potions and stuff like that. So it didn't seem as though Brimstone had very many magical powers himself, except that he knew how to uh, cure these things as well. And I'm personally not a really not really a fan of uh, the magical ca- side of the uh, DC universe. I'm really not not a big a fan of uh, the magical side of either comic universe, to be totally honest, DC or Marvel. 
I mean, aside from an occasional jaunt with John Constantine, I really don't venture much into the uh, magical side. And I think just, you know, when I read Con- when I read Constantine or Hellblazer, I think just Constantine's personality is what keeps me into that story more so than the magic. You know? I mean, magical stories just get tend to get a little too wonky for my taste. I've never really read a Phantom Stranger comic, and I don't think I ever want to. The only way I really like the Phantom Stranger as just kind of this uh, mysterious, I guess, stranger, for lack of a better term, who just kind of appears uh, to uh, either drop some wisdom or be an annoyance. I kind of like him in that role. And, and yeah, Dr. Fate is definitely one of those characters that I do feel has the power of plot device. He can do whatever the story needs him to do. Again, another character that I know marginally, but not a whole ton about. And... As far as the what can't this guy do complaint that people have about Superman, you know what? Superman's uh, limits are well known. You know, I think the complaint about Superman being overpowered comes from having read far too much bad Superman writing. And there's a lot of it because I think there are some writers who don't know how to challenge him on the level that he can be challenged. But one of the things uh, that I did like about Brimstone was his uh, mysteriousness. And I believe Philip Michael Thomas's pulled off that mysterious bit very well. I would have liked to see more Brimstone. He doesn't appear at all in the series, but there was a DC Comics tie-in series that ran for a time, you know, around the time of the show. Brimstone did come back. I really remember nothing about the comic in and of itself. I used to have it. And I didn't see this episode when I was a kid, so the character of Brimstone uh, didn't jump out to me at that point. No, I have to see... It's funny, I had that comic once, but I sold it. And uh, I'll have to see if I can find some version of it to read it again. Just so uh, now with knowledge of, Brim- of Brimstone, I could get a little more of uh, of the character. The only thing I really remember about him, is, about that book, was it had a very distinct cover with Brimstone uh, running Superboy over on his uh, motorcycle. That's, And I didn't even realize that was Brimstone until I watched this episode uh, a few months ago to, for the episode. So that's about all I got on Brimstone. Abandoned Earth was a lot better, and... I like Dave's uh, speculation. And uh, don't worry, Dave, you're going to find out how they knew. uh, Well, you know by now because it's been 10 episodes ago. But (laughs) at the time of Dave's writing this, he didn't know that uh, the aliens will get the information about Jorel and Lara from Superboy's unconscious mind or something like that. Pull it out of his baby memories. And as far as the inside of the Kent home, I don't remember if we saw it in Phantom of the Third Division. That was the one where... TJ and Lana came back to the farm with him, I believe. And I do remember there was this gag about them breaking Lana, about Lana and TJ breaking stuff when helping Martha in the kitchen. So I know we never saw the kitchen. Maybe we saw the inside of the house. There was one scene when she got a phone call, but I do remember another time in the season, I think it was uh, Troubled Waters, where Martha actually had brought the telephone outside onto the porch. And it rang when Lana called, and they were all eating outside. So I'm not 100% sure if we saw the inside of the Kent home in that episode. If we did, I remember being a super close-up on uh, on Martha on the phone. We Definitely nothing to the extent of what we saw in in this episode. So that's about all I got on uh, what Dave wrote in. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, manascreen at gmail.com. For now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. And when I come back... Neela and the Beast. Hang around, folks. Are you willing to follow me on a journey and risk getting lost in a swirling maze of past ages? protected only by our red indestructible capes as we break through the final unexplored realm of the time barrier to explore the fantastic Silver Age adventures of the world's greatest hero, Superman? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast as together we'll follow the Man of Steel, his cousin Supergirl, and his closest friends, Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Batman and Robin and others in Superman's never-ending quest to defend truth and justice in the pages of Action Comics, Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. 
go to the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, Flipboard, and Stitcher. And after you listen, feel free to send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And unless you request otherwise, I look forward to reading your comments on future episodes. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape, standard safety equipment for traveling through the time barrier. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start this episode off with Neela and the Beast. Original broadcast date of January 12th, 1991. This is episode 13 of season one. Directed by Jefferson Kimmy. Written by Stan Berkowitz and Lawrence Clavin. Guest cast includes Christine Moore as Princess Neela. Terrence Jenkins as Mitch. Chris McCarty as Peter. Judy Clayton as Dr. Stern. Denny Dyer as Hank. Christopher Oven as Scientist Number One. And Tom Akos as the Beast. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. A fire taking the shape of Superboy's S-Shield burns in the middle of the night. The following day, Superboy finds the emblem burned into the ground. As he looks up, Neela appears. Remember me? You did this? I thought you were going back to your own planet. There was a revolution. All the aristocrats were killed, slaughtered by farmers and shopkeepers. I'm the only one left. I'm not gonna fight them. I wouldn't ask you to. I need you to help me stay alive. Will you? They won't be happy until I'm dead too. They sent a creature after me. That's why I made this contact you. Well, it's better than tearing up the street. Much. But if I could find you so easily, so could that. A moment later, the beast appears and they both fight it. After it is easily defeated, Neela leaves and the alien life force that inhabited the monster leaves its body. At the bureau, Lana is closing up shop when Neela appears, transforming herself into a quote-unquote normal woman. If you were gonna hurt me, you would have done it already. I don't want to hurt you. Not this time. We're no longer rivals. We never were. You're right. We never were. But we do have other things in common. Like character, strength, courage. You were willing to sacrifice yourself last time I was here. I admire that. That's why I came to you. We don't have anything in common. Wait. I'm alone. All alone. I need someone I can trust. What about your own planet, the other aristocrats? I can't go back. You have to help me. Have to? Please. In a Volkswagen Beetle parked on the street, the life force is in the back seat while the driver tracks Neela on his scope. Meanwhile, the beast's body is brought into the Bureau's lab for observation. At Lana's apartment, she talks to Neela about giving the people on Earth a chance. You've been at that window all day, haven't you? They're all gone. Everybody I ever knew. Murdered by animals. If they acted that way, maybe that's how they were treated. Maybe they were. This is a new place, a new world, filled with new people. They're all commoners. So? I'm one. And you said you admired my courage. There'll be others. Come on. You're coming with me. 
She talks to Neela at a bar where a man approaches them. Neela is reluctant to talk to a quote-unquote commoner, but gives it a go, and he leaves his phone number. Later, the man is at an apartment with the man from the Volkswagen. He inserts a crystal into a powerful laser weapon and tests it, vaporizing a wooden chair. Back at the Bureau's labs. So what do you think? Definitely anthropoidal. Some kind of mutant? Maybe, but not terrestrial. What's the chance of this being a hoax? No hoax. Hmm. Clark. Oh, hi, Lana. It's safe to come in. He's already been decontaminated. No, thanks. Um, are you going to be done with this in time for dinner? Assuming you still want to eat? Yeah, but are you sure it's such a good idea? Clark, she's got nowhere else to go. And this guy we met seems really nice. I just want her to feel like she has a home here. I'm just worried about you. I'll be fine. <laughs> she's different now. All she wants to do is fit in. Um, here's the address. And uh, don't be late, okay? Am I ever? At Lana's place, as Neela gets ready, Lana continues to teach her about accepting commoners for who they are. I talked to him on the phone for two hours today. Two hours? Ooh, you're giving a lot of time to a plumber, aren't you? He doesn't always have to be a laborer. What if he wants to be? Why would he want to do that? Maybe he likes it. Well, how could he? The whole idea of this country is to let people be who they want to be. Nobody's born any better than anyone else. We had a revolution over that. So did we. I'm sorry. It's all right. You just put it into perspective, that's all. You have to accept people for what they are. Especially if you want them to care about you. Meanwhile, back at the other apartment, the two men are setting up their trap for Neela. At the bureau, Clark is x-raying the beast as Matt walks in. Matt is about to point out something peculiar about the beast when it attacks him. Clark belts it in the stomach and it jumps off the exam table and runs. Clark then changes to Superboy and goes after it. Lana and Neela arrive at the men's apartment while Superboy tries to attack the beast in an alley. It seems like the beast is about to try and kill Superboy, but he warns Superboy. They're going to kill her. Who? The ones from her planet. You were trying to help her? I love her. At the apartment, Clark hasn't shown up for the double date, so Lana takes off, leaving Neela vulnerable. After showing Lana to the door, Neela's date asks her to pour some wine. While her back is turned, he fires the laser weapon at her. Not so superior anymore, are you? You're one of them? Yes. One of them. Slaves to your kind. Dirt under your feet. But I found your weakness, didn't I? Finish it. It makes up for what we did to you. Do it. Then Superboy and the Beast fly in. Superboy protects Neela while the Beast takes hits from the laser. The Beast then chokes out Neela's date when the second man comes out from hiding and helps by firing a laser. The Beast is fatally hurt. And Superboy knocks the other man out. It saved me. He loved you. It died for me. The creature was dead all along. I gave it life. What are you? This. This is all I am. I was exploring your planet when I first saw you. I chose this body because of its strength. That is what you worship, isn't it? Strength, brutality. I used to. But no longer. Where are you going? It doesn't matter now. No. He's about to leave until Superboy catches him and puts him into the body of Neela's date. He rises and takes her hand, and the two of them can now love, learn, and grow together.
isn't that sweet? So, uh, this episode features the return of Neela, or as I tend to call her sometimes, Not Maxima, who is returning from her home planet of Not Almorak. And this was also an episode I remembered from uh, watching as a kid. Actually, I remember both Neela episodes. Uh, Neela's look was very uh, distinctive, and who can forget Lana throwing herself out off a roof. I may not have recorded uh, Neela off TV, but I did record this one, as it had one of the most memorable openings of really any episodes in this show with the effect shots of the fire uh, creating the S-Shield. You know, I remember watching this as a kid, wondering what was going on with this fire and where Superboy was going to uh, show up and uh, blow it out. And, uh, you know, I just love how the camera pulls back and all of a sudden you just see the the S-Shield in fire. It's kind of funny, though, because in the next scene when uh, Superboy shows up to look at the uh, burnt ground with his symbol on it, it looks like he's in the middle of the Mojave Desert. You know, this show takes place in Florida. There is no land that looks like that in Florida, at least not that I know of. But uh, never mind my surprise uh, that uh, the fire formed a symbol, and uh, instead of shining the Superboy signal in the sky, we've got the fiery S on the ground. So Superboy shows up to uh, check out the burn marks in the desert, and uh, here is Neela looking uh, all uh, 1980s with her big bleached hair. We're not going to go through 10 minutes of... Uh, Neela tearing up the street in this episode, fortunately. She even comments on that. That, uh, you know, I did this to get your attention because it was better than uh, tearing apart the street. Which I'm sure would have worked just as well, but it just would have made Superboy annoyed. So, like the synopsis said, the quote-unquote commoners, or as Neela would probably refer to them as the insects, have revolted and killed the aristocrats on Neela's world, and she needs help surviving. I'm not going to tell you what, what we should do with aristocrats on our world, because I enjoy my freedom. And uh, she's looking for allies. And uh, Superboy is the most powerful person she knows. So naturally she's going to uh, come uh, look for him. And um, this episode comes out before Maxima became an ally of Superman's in the comics. Uh, wasn't that really didn't happen until after uh, the Panic in the Sky arc. And uh, Dan Jurgens brought her into the Justice League sometime in early 1992. If it was 1991 at all, it would have been at the tail end of this year, months after this episode aired. But I do love her, uh, the references to her first appearance and uh, her resignation that setting a fire here was better than uh, tearing up the street. And Superboy agrees with her, you know. And then the beast shows up, which looks like uh, a cross between Chewbacca and an ape from the old uh, Planet of the Apes movies. So this is the creature that she referred to, the one that was sent back to kill her. And it goes right after Superboy, and the fight is on. Creature's not talking, and uh, some good wire work in this episode as Superboy uh, does a somersault in the air, and uh, he and Neela fly at the beast and uh, combine their strength and knock it down. And then it gets up and then just falls as if the actor uh, lost his balance in the suit or something. So, the Superboy's surprised. The beast is dead. He didn't think he hit it hard. They hit it hard enough to kill it. But Neela says you can't stay with Superboy and leaves. So the job is done. Moving on. You know, so many times you'd think these Neela episodes would only be like five minutes long. She uh, disappeared uh, about 14 or so minutes into the first episode in here. We're probably about five or so minutes in, and she's up and Superboy, nope, it can't be around you. We're getting a look at Superboy's suit here in the bright daylight, unlike last episode. And yeah, it's definitely uh, a darker blue here than it, in here in the 1991 episodes than it was in the ones from 1990. So, as the scene ends, there's a little flicker of light that flies out of the beast, and... Uh, that gives uh, us our first clue that uh, something is not quite right here. You know, the, the little uh, alien uh, of, of energy going from one person to another and an- animating uh, dead beings kind of reminds me of the, the alien from season one in uh, The Alien Solution and Revenge of the Alien. But while some of its uh, methods seem to be similar, they definitely don't have the same intentions. So here is Neela showing up at the bureau as Lana is uh, locking up for the night. She's now in her human guise and Lana is rightfully scared. She knows this woman is no good. She remembers what happened the last time they met. You know, I'm sure Lana remembers something about jumping off a building. And uh, Neela kind of wants to show Lana that she isn't a threat, but she's not going about it the right way. She's kind of walking in an intimidating fashion, which if you want to put somebody at ease, that's not the way to do it. You know, show some uh, maybe remorse or show some friendliness. She's still very stern and very hard. And uh, she came to Lana because she admires Lana because of her willingness to... uh, throw herself off of a building for her cause. So Neela is playing up how alone she is, and she's going to uh, break down as much as uh, Neela will allow herself to break down. What she's probably really breaking down is Lana's resistance. And uh, 
but she still has that briskness and the, she demands that Lana has to help her. And Lana's kind of like, yeah, yeah, lady, I don't got to do a damn thing for you. But she, this is Neela. This is somebody who's used to, I mean, we really know nothing about Neela on her home planet, but she seems like the type of person who's used to uh, barking out an order and uh, several people are running after to uh, fulfill it. But she has to work on more polite and asking people to do things or as, asking for help than uh, she's uh, than she's used to. So the uh, flicker of light, meanwhile, is spying on these two guys who are trying to kill her. Like I said, they, and I'm guessing they are from Neela's planet, which is called Not Almorak. And now the next thing we get is this hilarious scene of a bunch of guys carrying the beast, which uh, apparently weighs uh, quite a bit, into the Bureau's morgue or lab or something. And one of them suggests just throwing her. Here, you know what? I'll play the clip for you right here. It sure wasn't in my job description. Clark, is this why you signed up with the Bureau? Well, there were a few things I wanted to get to the bottom of. Once we decontaminate this thing, we ought to lay it right on Jackson's desk. He'd still think it was a hoax. <laughs> if they put it on Clark there, even if we put it on his desk, he'll still think it was a hoax. So Neela is saying, uh, you know, I kind of like Clark. They're taking the piss out of his boss a little bit. So Neela is uh, staying with Lana, and ne- and she's struggling with being what she calls a commoner. She's still retaining her uh, aristocratic and haughty attitudes, and that's a problem, you know. So to solve the problem, Lana takes her to the bar because what's going to help get rid of your haughty attitude than a trip to the bar? So now this dude shows up and offers to uh, buy them a drink, and she uh, – is still refusing to give the commoner a chance. And one problem with this with this episode, it doesn't give anybody names. So when you're talking about this in kind of an audio medium, it's kind of difficult to keep people straight. Obviously, Neil and Lana and all them are easy, but I really have no names on the plumber who is uh, Neela's date and uh, the guy in the car. So he's trying to break through her a little bit, trying to convince Neela to make a new friend and Neela is uh, uncomfortable and she's learning. I'm guessing she's kind of the person who can go up to somebody who's used to going up to somebody and saying, here, be my friend. And uh, the person has no choice but to be her friend. And uh, it looks like she's taken with the plumber a little bit. And uh, so the plumber, who I didn't recognize as being in the car, maybe he was off the, without going back and checking, I don't know. But the other guy is definitely uh, from uh, Neela's home planet and he's keeping an eye on things. So back to the beast, uh, Dr. Stern is analyzing the creatures some more, and she's as an extraterrestrial, and of course, here's Jackson, true to form, asking if it's a hoax. Does that look like a hoax to you? It's laying right there on the damn table. You can't, what are your eyes telling you, Dennis? You can't see any better than that. But on the flip side, Robert Levine gets to cash a paycheck this week. So Lana asks Clark to come to dinner with uh, Neela and the plumber, and at this point, uh, after Lana leaves, the flicker of light goes back into the beast. So Neela is having trouble dealing with the idea of someone who would want to be a plumber, which she considers a laborer, and beneath her. And apparently they draw a connection between the American Revolution and what happens on Neela's world, basically uh, the workers rising up and overthrowing the aristocracy. It's a simplified version of what happened during the American Civil War, but I guess it's close enough for the purposes of this episode. But either way, the war was fought so people could do whatever they wanted, which seems to drag Neela down into the dumps a little bit. But, you know, Lana is trying to impress upon Neela the ability to accept people and accept them for who they are and not their station in life. You know, as an aristocrat, she's used to probably has aristocrat friends on over on Not All Marek and probably has aristocrat teachers and only deals with the aristocracy. To be a regular person is something completely outside of her experience, and it's not something she understands. Maybe she needs to learn about it. Superboy did kind of tell her to learn about it after the events of the previous episode that she appeared in. So, back at the Bureau, Clark is doing some superpowered exams on the creature, and then Matt sees something, and the beast starts choking him. And in Matt's presence, because Matt's about to die and not really paying a whole hell of a lot of attention to Clark, it re- he gives a good punch right in the sternum, and it releases Matt. So he goes to chase. Hippo Matt holds him back. Like, what are you going to do about this crazy, about this thing? But he says he's going to go get help and uh, change his Superboy. Yeah, you know, when you let a monster out of the lab you're working in, it's best to uh, either go get help or go get Superboy. Go do something. So Clark changes, tracks 
Superboy tracks down the beast and they start the fight again. And it's strong and it speaks and his mouth moves a little bit as it speaks. So it has a functioning face somewhat. The mouth moves a little bit, not enough to give it expressions, but I guess that moves enough for this episode that aired in syndication. And the beast tells Superboy that these two guys are trying to kill Neela and he's trying to save her because he loves her. Okay. So back at the uh, double date, well, which is more of like a three-wheel date, Lana offers to leave, and the plumber is more than happy to show her out. And then Alana is somewhat taken aback. And I like Alana. I think, yeah, I think I'll just leave. And uh, the plumber's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'll walk you out. And she's like, oh, no, don't ask me to stay or anything. Don't act like you actually want me here. But, you know, she's gone. And uh, with Lana gone, the plumber and his buddy can get to work here. They actually get up to get more wine. He... Uh, Fire some kind of projectile ladder, projectile ladder, and it weakens her. So now Neela realizes who uh, the plumber and uh, these people are, and this other guy is, and this is her point of sacrifice. This is the point where she is no longer who she was, where she's willing to give up her life to make up for what the aristocracy did. But she says that as the beast kind of comes in and takes care of business. He is unfazed by the weapon and uh, throws uh, both these guys around. Superboy is uh, throwing another guy around who. Is not superpowered in any way. So Neela was taken aback by the beast's uh, sacrifice and love for her. And then the flicker of light just kind of leaves his body and is going to. And apparently it noticed Neela when he was exploring her planet while he was just kind of fluttering around on Not Omarak. So apparently the uh, flicker of light was in love with Neela and he chose the beast because she respected strength. But now that she's had a little taste of it and things a little bit. Di- she's seeing how things are a little bit different on Earth and she's tasting love a little bit too. And. Maybe now she gets what she wants. Who knows? So, at this point, Superboy puts the flicker of light into the plumber, and it brings him to life, and I guess they're going to go and live there happily ever after now. So that was kind of a cheesy episode. Not a lot to it, just kind of an excuse to bring Neela back. So at this point, I'm going to take a break and play a podcast promo. When I come back, the golem. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. I've got a question, though. I just am curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? Welcome back, folks. Going to finish things off with The Golem. Original broadcast date was January 19th, 1991. Episode 14 of Season 3. Written by Robert Weimer and directed by Paul Steubenrout. Guest cast include Paul Kufos as Daniel, Brian Thomas as The Golem, Victor Hello as Levi, Darren Dowler as Mike, Larry Buckland as Jonah, Mike Battaglia as Daryl, Chris Vance as Kid Number 1, and Christopher Kazmarek as... Kid number two. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. As two Jewish men, a writer named Levi and his friend, walk down the street, a group of Nazi kids vandalize the store. This infuriates Levi and he vows revenge. Later, while in his basement, Levi packs mud into the shape of a man's body and chants a Jewish passage. 
Moments later, a man rises from the mud pack, towering over him. Listen to me! I am your creator. Your only purpose is to eradicate the world of bigots. All of them. They must be destroyed, annihilated, crushed. I will tell you who these men are. Do you understand me? At the Bureau, Levi's friend tells Matt, Lana, and Clark about the legend of the golem. They're supposed to have enormous strength. Legend says that during the Middle Ages, they helped to protect the Jews. And you think your friends created one of these things? I don't know what to think. Levi's always been interested in the Kabbalah. It's a collection of ancient Jewish mysticism that, among other things, tells how to make a golem. Most people dismiss it, but Levi believes in it. You're saying anyone can buy this book and create one? No, no, no. It would take something else as well. With Levi, I think it's his hatred. There's so much emotion there, and maybe the ritual helps to transfer it. Why would he do it? To take care of this group of neo-Nazi kids we've got in the neighborhood. He despises them. And you said the golem's made from mud? Well, that's what the book says. Well, then it shouldn't be too hard to find. No, no. Once it comes out of the mud, it looks like a normal human. Levi tried to tell me that this guy was his boarder, but <laughs> I don't know. Well, how can someone tell the difference? The Hebrew sign of life. Uh, may I? It would be right over his heart. Or it could just be a tattoo, couldn't it? Yeah, I guess it could just be a tattoo. And I guess I could just be crazy, too. And I probably was for coming in here. Wait a minute. No, look, I'm sorry, I've wasted your time. What do we do now? Violet? Kind of far-fetched? I don't know. Wouldn't be the first time a monster was created out of hatred. That night, the Nazi kids are at it again, attacking a Jewish man in an alley. And this time, Levi is ready for them. Well, well, well. What have we here? You're that Jew rider, aren't you? We hate your kind most of all. Hate? <laughs> you don't know what hate is. This is what a bigot looks like. Go ahead. After the Nazis get the message and they try to flee, the golem continues to attack. Levi tries to stop him, and he strikes Levi, seriously hurting him. The following day, the golem approaches two police officers at a gas station, and their uniforms look similar to the Nazi kids. Clark and Lana are casing the neighborhood, and they look for the golem when a police car speeds by. They follow it to the gas station where the golem is beating up the police. Clark makes a quick exit, while a man watches along as the police try to stop the golem. Superboy offers a hand. When he confronts the golem, a sedan driven by the man speeds toward them and goes airborne, crashing into a van and exploding. The distraction allows the golem to get away. Superboy puts out the fire and looks inside the sedan, but finds nothing. That night, Superboy goes to a Nazi meeting where he warns them about the golem. It's their unclean dress and their generally unheroic appearance. Incredible. It's Mein Kampf. Not the book. The fact that you can read. What do you want? I came here to warn you. There's a golem that's been created to destroy your group. Is that right? Just ask your friend in the hospital. So why would you want to protect us? Maybe you sympathize with us more than you care to admit. I protect everyone's right to their own beliefs. No matter how repulsive they might be. He later finds Lana snooping around outside and as Clark joins her. They see a man from the gas station parked across the street and follow him when he drives away. They catch up to him at an abandoned building and find the room that he lives in. Who is this guy? My name is Daniel. Question is, who are you? Clark Kent, Lana Lang. We work for the Bureau for Extra Normal Matters. Oh, amateurs. What are you doing in my home? You're the guy who helped the golem get away from Superboy. Well, I suppose you could look at it that way. What I actually did was protect Superboy from the golem. Oh, really? You don't have any idea what you're dealing with here, do you? Well, we know the legend. So do I. I've been studying it for years. And believe me, it's a lot more than a legend. 
But if anyone can stop this thing, it's got to be Superboy. There's only one way to stop a golem. The mark over his heart must be removed. Well, then that's what he'll do. Look, a golem isn't necessarily evil. With the proper training, it can evolve into a force for good. Well, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Two things. One, stay out of my way. And two, let me handle it. Hey! It's for your own good. You'll never get that open. It's solid metal. When sitting next to the trash, the golem sees a flyer about a Nazi march that night. Lonnie and Clark also see the same flyer while locked in the room. Clark goes over to the corner of the room and burns the trap door into the floor with his heat vision so he and Lana can escape. While the Nazis are at their camp preparing to march, the golem bursts in and starts destroying the place and attacking Nazis. The place catches fire as Clark and Lana arrive. Clark, Clark sneaks away and flies into Superboy. As Superboy encounters the golem, Daniel comes in and tries to reason with him. When he talks to the golem, Superboy helps a man outside. Listen to me, will you? I'm here to help you. I know what Levi said to you, but it's not going to stop them. All it's going to do is create more hatred. Is that what you want? There's another choice. You don't have to kill. Listen to me! You have a choice! Do you hear me? You have a choice! He puts the boy down, then grabs the burning post. Daniel tries to stop the golem as he tries to burn the mark on his chest, but the strength is too great. No, don't. The golem stumbles outside, turning back into mud as the building explodes. Daniel comes out after escaping the explosion, and the golem completely becomes a pile of dirt. Superboy maintains hope that the Nazis and people like them can change. I couldn't get through to him. How did you get out? The back. He was just doing what he was taught. Like them. Will they ever stop? There's always hope. I feel sorry for the victims. Who's going to protect them now? I wouldn't worry about that. All right, so this episode, like I mentioned, the opening is about hatred and the cycle of hatred and what happens when that hatred gets into your heart and poisons you. Obviously, as a Jew, Levi has every reason to hate Nazis and everything they stand for, but it's really his own hatred that becomes the catalyst for this episode, and it just eventually becomes goes from that, a being that is created out of Levi's hatred, kind of goes into an out-of-control monster story. And Superboy is in this weird position of having to defend Nazis. And this episode goes into no explanation of why Nazism is wrong. They say it's wrong, but don't go into anything else. And they really kind of become something that's just there, as opposed to anything else. So the episode starts with uh, these two guys walking down the street, Street talking about the excess or lack thereof of Levi's book. Levi is the shorter of the two men. Again, like the episode beforehand, this episode is uh, not giving names of every character. So it's kind of just from reading the guest cast list, it's kind of hard to tell who's who. So I'm really not going to uh, be using a lot of names. I mean, obviously, Levi was uh, pretty obvious. And I'm guessing Levi is probably in his 60s, maybe. In this episode, late 60s maybe, definitely old enough to have been a Holocaust survivor. And he harbors a lot of prejudice in his own heart. You know, he kind of wonders who would want to read an old Jew's book. So he does feel somewhat, just from what he says, it does seem as though Levi feels 
persecuted by the uh, world at large. And that's all coming out of his own personal experiences. Not going to say it's right. Not going to say it's wrong. It just is. And it's a natural response to what he's gone through in his life. And apparently Levi writes about fantasy in the Dark Ages. I'd probably read that. I'm more of a sci-fi guy than fantasy. But I know plenty of uh, people, and probably some of you who listen to this podcast, would probably would probably read uh, Levi's books about medieval uh, fantasy. So Levi wants to uh, fight hatred with hatred. You know, kind of like fighting fire with fire. And uh, we see these two kids uh, messing around with, it looks like a fruit stand or, or a bodega of some kind. But this is a Hispanic family, and uh, they're all dressed alike, uh, uniforms. You only see them really fast. You only get a glimpse of the black armbands on their left arm. So Levi has been uh, kind of working on a way to uh, fight back against uh, this kind of persecution. And obviously these Nazis are not just uh, hating on Jews. They're, they all, they're also... The family of the uh, bodega was uh, Hispanic, so they are definitely white supremacists. Very well-groomed white supremacists, but white supremacists nonetheless. So, Levi is doing some clay work in his basement, and what appears to be a sculpture on the shape of a human body is kind of laying on, I don't know if this is on the floor or on the table, but it's definitely the shape of a human body, and he reads something from the book, maybe some kind of incantation, and uh, the mud starts to crack, and... Uh, at first, uh, it moves a little bit, and Levi felt like he was getting teased by the possibility of progress, and then eventually the uh, mud pack kind of slowly uh, gets up, and the clay being stands upright. And congratulations, Levi. You have created life. He uh, peels back some of the clay and uh, finds an eye. Before we go to commercial, we find the Levi kind of dressing Brian Thompson, who appeared in some Star Trek. Uh, he was one of the punks from... The first Terminator film, I believe he's the one who ended up having to give Arnold Schwarzenegger his clothes. So, he's definitely uh, been around. And uh, Levi has created him to annihilate bigots, which is a worthy goal, but it's definitely going to be a bigot from Levi's point of view. And obviously, just from what we've seen so far, we know who he's going to uh, send the golem after. So, meanwhile, in the next scene, Levi's friend happens to roll to the bureau telling Lana about and Clark about a golem, which, from what I found on Wikipedia, on... Uh, is an animated anthropomorphic being that is created entirely from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud. I'm not sure why he's now reporting a golem. He mentions that Levi is into Jewish mysticism. So fortunately, just not anybody can create a golem. And Levi's buddy here points out that Levi might want to use the golem to fight these uh, neo-Nazi kids, which is uh, that are kind of terrorizing the uh, the neighborhood. And basically the golem is... Uh, he's, Tells him the golem is basically a big dude, and uh, the only thing way you could tell a golem from a regular person is by the uh, Hebrew sign for life over his heart. And then Matt asks if the Hebrew life sign can be a tattoo, and uh, that offends the Levi's buddy, and uh, you know he leaves kind of wondering why he came there at all. And this scene seems quite out of place right here. So far, we've only seen the golem in Levi's basement, so I'm not sure why he's reporting. Levi for making a golem to the bureau when it hasn't happened yet. Maybe he surmised that from the conversation he had with Levi on the street. I don't know if Levi showed it to him in a scene we didn't see, but it's just weird that the golem is created. It's still hanging out in Levi's basement, and here he is telling the bureau about it. So now the Levi is out on the street with uh, the golem in the alley, really, and we get a look a better look at these punks. And yeah, they're dressed as uh, little Nazis and. Uh, they specifically hate the uh, the Jews most of all. So yeah, these guys are absolutely despicable and horrid. And Levi shows the golem what a bigot looks like. And that's going to cause a problem. Because the Nazis are wearing a, you know, a military-type shirt. It's beige with with a strap that kind of goes over their shoulder and down the side. like uh, But basically a beige shirt. Beige button-down. A military shirt. Almost like a uniform. And... The, the golem starts taking these kids apart, and Levi's getting satisfaction out of this. He's enjoying it. and But the golem is out of control and tries to kill the kid. I'm not sure Levi necessarily wants this kid dead. He just wants to send a message, maybe uh, kind of convince the kid to do something else with his life. I'm not sure this is going to do that, but that's what maybe Levi wants. It's kind of hard to read Levi's intentions. However, good as intention He's a lost control of the creature, and it appears 
as though the golem kills Levi as it's kind of mourning him. The synopsis says it just knocked Levi out, but we don't see Levi again in this episode. So maybe you knocked him out, but you know, it just seems like the tragedy of this whole thing is that Levi creates this being to stamp out hatred and he's accidentally killed by it because he loses control of his creation. And it just kind of goes off almost on programming. The only thing Levi taught this this creature is what a bigot looks like and that he's meant to annihilate bigots. So he's basing bigots solely on what they look like and what they're wearing, which now creates the rest of the problem because now we've just got to, we're focused less on, less on the Nazis than more on an out-of-control monster. Now, I want to say this. It would have made more sense for the Bureau scene to happen after all this because at least then there could have been a report of a golem. And then it makes sense that uh, Levi's friend is reporting such a thing to the Bureau. It doesn't make a whole ton of sense to uh, report it when he did. And now, I also kind of had a false memory as well associated with this episode. I always seem to think Robert Wool, who uh, most of us know from Batman 89, and some, some of you may know him from the HBO show Arliss in the 90s. I thought he was in this episode as the guy who said, yeah, we hate this. Jewish author most of all, but nope, he was not in this episode, so I was a little bit surprised by that when I looked at the cast list, but I guess uh, I just had a false memory because of the guy's voice. It does sound a little like him. So, Clark and Lana are looking for the golem, and since uh, the police are dressed in similar colors to the Nazi kids, the golem, it's, the golem attacks them. Again, completely out of control. So, Clark s- says to uh, he's going to go to get more police, and Lana points out that there's plenty of police, but since they're getting their butts kicked and thrown around by the goal, maybe there isn't quite enough police to uh, handle this situation. So then there's this one guy in a car, uh, you know, looking very uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, big, big guy. I've probably seen him somewhere before, but I don't really recognize his name or where I saw him from. And he's watching the goal. I'm not sure what his deal is at first, but Superboy is fighting the golem, and uh, this guy provides a distraction for the golem to get the way. He kind of drives right at the... Uh, at the goal, and kind of does a Dukes of Hazard type jump with his car into a truck and uh, hits the golem, and it gets away. And uh, the golem, it just seems like a lot like the Hulk, all rage and not a lot of thinking. So, however, the uh, guy who crashed the car is gone as well. So something is uh, not right about uh, this new player on the scene here. Curiouser and curiouser. So there's a Nazi flag, and this looks like a Hitler youth meeting. And uh, there's a leader type kid is reading uh, Mein Kampf, which Hitler wrote in prison before he rose to power. So Superboy warns the neo-Nazis they're in danger because uh, a golem was sent after them, and uh, this Nazi kid, uh, acting all superior, gives him shit about why he would warn them, and uh, you know, super, here's Superboy being Superboy. He said he'll do that to anyone, and he calls their beliefs repulsive, which they are, but be that as it may, he's going to protect their right to have that belief, uh, right or wrong. That's not really what this episode about is about. But he's protecting all life, good, bad, or indifferent. And I guess these kids have time to turn their life around. They can stop walking this path now. We don't know if they will or not, but they can. So Clark finds Lana kind of poking around the alley. And uh, eventually they both find the guy who uh, let the golem escape. I didn't remember this as- aspect of the episode, uh, at least initially when I started watching it, but... It started coming back to me as I watched the episode. And I especially remember the ending with him being a golem as well. And uh, he introduces himself as Daniel. And uh, Daniel has studied the golem legend. At least that's what he tells them. And he wants to handle it. Kind of like the golem hunter or whatever. So he gives the necessary exposition to uh, Hawk and Lana that the only way to really kill a golem is to remove the symbol above its heart. And he's right. And he says that the golem can be a force to good can be a force for good, and uh, make no mistake, this golem is not evil. Just out of control because Levi didn't really give him a lot of guidance before he died. All he said, told, all he taught the golem is, quote-unquote, what a bigot looks like, basically what uniform to look for. And he can't tell the difference between the neo-Nazis or the police. At least the cops that are wearing beige. I'm sure if uh, some cops showing up in blue uniforms showed up, I wonder if uh, the golem would attack them, uh, as quickly, although he might attack them if he felt they were attacking him. But what we learn is that, well, that a golem can be trained, a golem can learn. Just this one isn't. 
So eventually we find out there's going to be a neo-Nazi march that night. And Alana and Clark get out of uh, this abandoned building uh, where they are locked. Clark creates a crap door with a T-Division. And uh, here is the golem attacking the neo-Nazis. And uh, again, this show doesn't really deal with them a whole lot. But, you know, neo-Nazi groups need to be destroyed no matter where they are. So the problem with this golem is it doesn't know restraint. And you kind of wonder what he would do after he's done with these guys. So despite the fact that he's taken out a neo-Nazi group, this golem has to be stopped. And Superboy goes after the golem, but Daniel wants to talk to him, but it's not listening. And he's trying to stop the golem from killing them because Daniel has the right idea. The cycle of hatred needs to stop. You know, Nazis kill Jews, Jews kill Nazis, you know, just the cycle of hatred and violence goes back and forth and back and forth and is all consuming. And this golem was created out of Levi's hatred and that's all it knows. So Daniel is trying to uh, train him and stop him killing this kid who maybe ends up changed by the experience. We don't know. We'll never see these kids again in the show and maybe they'll change. Maybe they won't. As the ending says, they have to have hope. So I think the golem realizes that he is only a force for hatred and destruction, and he refuses to allow that. He breaks the cycle of hatred and ends his own life by removing the Hebrew life mark from his chest, which is not what Daniel wanted. And with the golem dead, Lana worries about the victims of the neo-Nazi kids, and he's also she's also kind of concerned, you know, about the neo-Nazi kids in the sense of, are they still going to be a problem? And is there a way to kind of get them out of what they're into? But Daniel is not worried about that in the least, and he walks away. And then we learn that he's a golem as well, as he has the life mark on his chest. So another mysterious character that we know nothing about, that we just get that surprise that, oh, he's a golem too. No idea how he was created, how, how old is he could be. I mean, he could... Be, I, Golem seems to be immortal. So, again, it, it puts out there that that creature could live forever. So, like I said before, this was an episode I had recorded off TV, so I remember it well. And this episode is kind of like the Sons of Icarus, where it kind of half-asses this message a little bit. It doesn't really address whether Nazism is good or bad, aside from the one line where Superboy calls it repulsive. Like I said before, it's more about ending the cycle of hatred and... I guess we're supposed to believe that the neo-Nazi youth are going to renounce their ways after Daniel saves them. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. No way to know. This is not a Superboy fighting Nazis episode like many people would probably prefer them to be. They're kind of victims, not innocent victims, but he's protecting them kind of out of the, which is a byproduct of stopping the out-of-control golem. This episode more about what can happen to you if your hatred consumes you. And the golem is the representation of Levi's hatred. And even something created as what Levi believed to be a force for good can go horribly wrong and be a problem. The mistake with Levi is that he wasn't able to teach the golem how to properly detect bigots. Just saying this is what a bigot looks like doesn't work if the bigot is dressed in a similar colors as the police. So this was a good episode. Not as meaty as somebody today would probably like it, but I'm not sure how... If you want a Superman fighting Nazis episode, you're going to get that in Lois and Clark. So that was a very good episode. And this one was, you know, I enjoy this one too. But again, more adventure than anything else. So next time, the next two episodes of uh, season three, Day in the Double Life and Body Swap. In the meantime, want to leave feedback? So always welcome. Manscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manscreen Podcast, your search feed, and the show should come up. You can find the show on Twitter at Manuscreencast. But next time, folks, we're on the same team. Good night. The Manuscreen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. Thank you.